for those inspiring words and song. Boys and girls, we haven't forgotten about you, but one of the talents we hope to develop is some more support in that area so that we don't miss a Sabbath without a story for our children. We apologize for today, but we plan to fill that as time goes on. Is that okay? Keep it pretty down because my voice is fairly strong. Thank you. You know, last Sabbath, as we were worshiping here, a tragedy was unfolding on the mainland. Many of you have been following the story this week in Tucson, Arizona. A deranged 22-year-old young man went to a political gathering with Democratic Congressman Gabriel Gifford and proceeded to unload a Glock with an extended um, magazine, killing six people and injuring another 13. As you have heard the story over the week, you know that the senator, or excuse me, the congressman, Gifford, was shot through the head, clear through. She was hospitalized, but she survived. On Monday, there was a moment of silence that the president and the first lady uh, asked the nation to observe. On Wednesday evening, if you had been following the story, you know that he came to the University of Arizona at um, Tucson for a memorial. And during his presentation, he advised those that were there that Gabriel Gifford opened her eyes. We've heard that they believe the tube has been removed and she's breathing on her own. She's now sitting up and we know, hope that things will continue to improve for her. Among those killed was a nine-year-old girl, if you heard the story. She had just um, come with a neighbor who was taking her to meet the congressman because she had just joined and been elected in her elementary school to the school senate, and she wanted to meet a civil servant. It just so happened that she was born on 9-11. They buried her on Thursday. Another individual who was killed during that time was the chief judge for the Arizona federal court. Now this touches home for me because in my career I worked not in Arizona but in Seattle for the federal court. And I know firsthand what that experience 
was like on a court family. During the time that I was uh, working in Seattle, one of our assistant U.S. attorneys was assassinated in his home one evening by an individual who, and I don't believe that case is still solved. Um, they buried him on yesterday. And so today, as we begin, I would just like you to join me in a, a moment of silence for those whose families have been so dramatically impacted uh, so that they will receive healing and comfort during this time of loss. Will you join me? Now I'd invite you today to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the 34th chapter, and beginning at uh, verse 1, as we consider today a discussion of Moses and Martin on the mountaintop. Reluctant leaders called by God for freedom and social justice. Deuteronomy 34, beginning at verse 1, I will be reading in your hearing from the Amplified Bible. You follow along in your translation. And the Bible says, And Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, that is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land from Gilgad to Dan and all Nephtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah to the western Mediterranean Sea. And the south, the Negab and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zor. The Lord said to him, This is the land which I have sworn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth poor, but no man knows where his tomb is to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes was not dim, nor his nature force abated. And the Israelites wept for Moses in the plain of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses was ended. Let us pray. Father, today hide me behind your veil, and may the words that I speak from today be from on high, is our prayer. Amen. 
There's no school on Monday. The post office is closed on Monday. It's a national holiday. Why? Martin Luther King Day. It's a national holiday. On the third Monday of January now, since 1983, here in America, we celebrate the birth of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. after President Reagan signed that holiday into law. Many of us, and most of you are familiar with the words of Martin Luther King from his last sermon. They proved to be prophetic. Now, I know I will not do justice to his rich, full, polished inflections of a Southern Baptist preacher. But he said, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't matter to me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he allowed me to go to the mountaintop. And I have looked over. And I have seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Earlier, in August of 1963, during the People's, Market, People's March on Washington in front of the uh, Lincoln Memorial, you are familiar with these words. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a desert state, sweltering with the heat of injustice and oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. The first now famous quotation is the closing paragraph of Dr. King's sermon to the sanitation workers in preparation for their march to highlight the city of Memphis, Tennessee's long-standing 
discrimination against the sanitation workers who, largely who were largely composed of black citizens. Dr. King's assassination less than 24 hours later at just the age of 39 ended his storied short 14 years of leadership of what history called the civil rights movement. Many theologians over the last several decades have made comparisons between the leadership of Moses and Dr. Martin Luther King. Many divide Moses' life into 40-year periods. We all are familiar with the bedtime story of Moses hidden in a basket, being found by the Egyptian princess. His first few years with his family, to his life in palaces of Pharaoh as a prince, to his fleeing Egypt following his murder of an Egyptian guard for the mistreatment of Hebrew slaves. The next 40 years in the desert during which it is recorded that he married and began writing the first five books of the Bible. And the last 40 years leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, through the borders of the promised land. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. lived just short of 40 years. Being born on January 15, 1929, and being assassinated at an age of 39. It was 40 years after Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination that our 41st, 44th, excuse me, and first African-American president was elected to the United States. It was 45 years ago when Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech in front of the Washington Monument on August 23, 1963. To put this in perspective, at least for me, I had turned 16 years old that summer and was entering my sophomore year of high school at La Sierra Academy. It was 42 years ago on the evening of April 3, 1968, that Martin Luther King speaking to the striking sanitation workers at Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee, delivered what has become known as his I have a been to the mountain top, excuse me, I have been to the mountaintop sermon. Less than 24 hours later, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated by a single shot while standing on the second floor balcony at the Lorraine Motel. The next day was scheduled for the march on Memphis for the sanitation workers. Riots proceeded to break out in 110 cities in the United States. Again, to put this in perspective, I was 21 years old and a sophomore at La Sierra College. Time will not permit us today to talk about, to talk only about just a few of the historical facts about Dr. King's background. We already noted that Dr. King was born in 1929 in Atlanta, Georgia to a long line of Baptist preachers. He was an exceptional child, finishing high school at age 15, having skipped two years of high school 
and entering Morehouse College, which is now Morehouse University, where he graduated at age 19. He completed his graduate degree at Boston University and Crozier Theological Seminary in uh, uh, Pennsylvania in 1953 and completed and received his Ph.D. in 1955. Dr. King received the Nobel Prize in 1964. These historical facts and background, while important, are not the primary focus. Today I want to focus more on the social justice agendas of their leadership. Both Moses and Dr. King had their burning bush experiences. Moses beginning in Exodus chapter 3 and again retold in the New Testament in August, excuse me, in Acts 7 talks about when the voice, voice from the burning bush told him to take off his shoes because the ground upon which he was standing was holy ground, begins Moses' encounter with God. Dr. Martin Luther King recalls his burning bush experience during what he referred to as a crisis of faith. He recalls it in a sermon this way. It was in the midst of this crisis of faith that I experienced a heavy burden being lifted from my shoulders. And I felt the liberating presence of God as never before. Almost out of nowhere, I heard a voice. Martin Luther, stand for righteousness. Stand for justice. Stand for the truth. And lo, I will be with you even to the end of the world. After that experience, he said, I was ready to face anything. Both Moses and Dr. King were reluctant leaders, led, used, and directed by God for his purpose in moving a people toward freedom, freedom, of body, mind and soul, physically, mentally, and spiritually. Uh, both were given enormous, the enormous task of changing oppressed and entrenched reluctance of the oppressors who exploited the people for their benefit. The desire for freedom ran strong in both settings but the desire for affirmative social movement toward meaningful progress and change proved in each case to be a daunting task. 400 plus years of oppression and generationally dehumanizing slavery, physically and mentally in both cases. The children of Israel, and African Americans and other indigenous populations in the United States was an enormous responsibility. Permit me a moment here um, 
let me throw a sociological term here. I have a minor in sociology. And so uh, I want to throw one term out for us. It's religio-political, which means the blending of religion and politics rather than the separation, which is often the stance taken by the church. Religio-political. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had adopted nonviolent, assertive action as a, here's the term, religio-political philosophy of leadership and direct confrontation amid the forces of separation, segregation, and violence as an approach to address the entrenched prejudice and discrimination against the poor black citizens, primarily in the South, known as the Confederate States of the United States, and secondarily, the more hidden and equally insidious discrimination experienced by people of color in the North. Our time together today will not allow us to unpack the differences in discrimination in regions of the country, but suffice to say that in an, an ugly history of ongoing universal exploitation, peoples of color in the United States since its inception. Former President Bill Clinton described it this way in a speech. Consider this. We were born, speaking of the United States, with a declaration of independence which asserted that we are all created equal and a constitution that endorsed slavery. We had slavery for centuries before the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. We waited another 100 years for civil rights legislation. Women had the vote less than 100 years. We have always had difficulty with these things, as most societies do. Moses, as well as Martin Luther King Jr., felt unprepared and inadequate for the task that was thrust upon them. Both were content in their current circumstances at the time. Both were content with the rural settings. When called Moses, almost 80 years old at that time, was content herding sheep, being married to Jacobed, uh, Jethro's daughter, raising his family and writing the first five books of the Bible, and Martin Luther King wanted to pastor his church, the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, and write his dissertation for his PhD. But God had other plans for them. Both humbly, with trepidation, rose to the occasion and allowed the Lord to use them. God provided strength, fortitude, boldness and tenacity to speak truth to power against the resistance of time, tradition, prejudice, and custom, both religious and political. Martin Luther, much like Moses, facing Pharaoh, confronted and challenged the powers of government in the United States. One of Dr. King's most powerful and impactful letters was written from the Birmingham jail entitled Letter from the Birmingham Jail, dated 
April 16, 1963. The Bible records powerful letters, books composed while their authors were imprisoned, confined for their activism, challenging abuse of authority by those in power. Paul comes to mind. John comes to mind, the prophet John. The Bible and history also records the warning of Christians being falsely prosecuted and persecuted for their faith and activism. Modern-day prophets, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Gandhi, Mother Teresa in India, Nelson Mandela in South Africa, along with biblical heroes, are known for stating that a man, a woman, unwilling to die for something will fall for anything. In the letter from the Birmingham jail, Dr. King stated in part, and I quote, There was a time when the church was very powerful, during the time when early Christians rejoiced in being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion, but a thermostat that determined the mores of society. When the early Christians entered town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace, outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on at the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. And I like Dr. King's use of terminology. He was a language expert. They were, he said, too God-intoxicated to be astronomically unintimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to the ancient evils of infanticide, that's child and baby killing, and gladiatorial conquest, referring to the Dark Ages. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is weak, is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silence and often even a vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity. For those of you that were in Sabbath school a couple weeks ago, I reviewed with you uh, a report from the Berna Group uh, Research Center. Um, if you remember those statistics, this quote from Dr. Luther King ring, rings true today. Continuing 
Let me back up. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th, and I've included the 21st century. He said, every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned uh, into outright disgust. Both Moses and Martin King were vulnerable men with human weaknesses. Both at times acted impulsively. Moses striking the rock in anger instead of speaking to it as the Lord had instructed. Both, however, were adult enough to acknowledge and admit their weaknesses, what's kept them humble, and this transparency and vulnerability allowed people to identify with them and respect and appreciate their leadership. Both were visionaries in touch with and directed by higher power. Both had the gift of wisdom to surround themselves with individuals who provided counsel and direction. You remember in Moses' case, he was approached by his brother and sister, and his father-in-law in particular, basically told you're going to kill yourself if you continue at the pace that you're going. You need to appoint individuals who can assist you in matters of state with the, among the people. And so, like Moses, Dr. King's surrounded himself with organizations like the Southern Leadership Conference, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the Congress of Racial Equality, along with many advisors, too numerous to list here. Martin often held retreats with his advisors. Both learned over the course of time the art of delegation. Both were good communicators, motivators, and teachers. Both were open to change and transition as time went on without compromising principle. Each had their detractors, and we are familiar with the biblical stories that turned Moses' hair white tried his patience and caused him to strike the rock in a fit of indignation and miss going into, the Canaan, into Canaan with his people. We know he received the greater reward following his death. In Dr. King's case, there were many religious, political, and private detractors and haters, which resulted in his life being taken by an assassin's bullet in the prime at a prime age of 39. Both fought individual battles of self-doubt and discouragement, being acutely aware of their individual weaknesses and vulnerabilities. Both were strengthened by the support from heaven and humanity. Both maintained strong, vibrant, daily communication with a living, engaged Heavenly Father who proved to be 
their prime source of strength. In a particular revealing note to the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, Dr. King stated, and I quote, since the gospel of Jesus is a social gospel, as well as a personal gospel seeking to serve the whole man, a social and political action committee shall be established for the purpose of keeping the congregation intellectually informed concerning the social, political, and economic situation. In concluding, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. became recognized as a moral leader of America and some would say of the world during his time. Commenting on Dr. King's speech entitled Beyond Vietnam at the Riverside Church in New York, John Bennett, then president of the Union Theological Seminary said, there is no one who can speak to the conscience of the American people as powerfully as Martin Luther King. His foremost contribution as a moral leader and thinker was his penetrating insight into the meaning of justice. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, Dr. King often said. And so today in America, we recognize and celebrate the life and death of a fallen hero who awakened a nation on behalf, in biblical terms, the downtrodden, who have been oppressed and abused. His nonviolent direct action changed the face of a nation to the point some 40 years after his assassination, we have an African-American family, first family, whose ancestors excuse me, helped to build the White House, and for many years following, with the exception of a very, a very few, the only access was through the back door or servant's quarters. My appeal to each of you today as SDA Christians world over, and especially here in Hawaii, what we refer to as paradise, we treasure our rule settings, and the benefits and admonition of a healthy country living environment. It is noted, however, that both Martin Luther King, Moses, and for that matter, Christ's earthly ministries were largely in urban settings among the teeming masses. Society's need and our mission in the 21st century are largely in urban settings where the people are. As we look to the future here at Honakaha, as we attempt to identify our spiritual gifts and determine our ministries as the priesthood of believers, my challenge to each of you is simply this. Is our relationship with our Lord and Savior such that you can hear his voice, leading you to be used by God for his purpose? Part of the three angels' message, 
the good news of a risen and soon coming Savior is also restorative justice while we remain here on this earth. And it takes on many forms in the 21st century world community in which we live today. From abuses in the form of racism, classism, hunger, starvation, the poor, poverty, child and gender abuse, homophobia, immigration issues, social and economic exploitation and oppression, as exemplified by the death and life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Let me end today with a quote from the I Have a Dream speech that leads to our closing song and commitment. Again, you may be familiar with this. Dr. King said, and I quote, I have come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long because truth crushed to the earth will rise again. How long not long, because no lie can live forever. How long? Not long, because you shall reap what you sow. How long? Not long. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch over his own. How long? Not long. Because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. How long? Not long. Because Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is tramping out to the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. He is sounding forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. His truth is marching on. Our closing hong, song today is the Battle Hymn of, of the Republic. It's found on page 647 in your hymnal. I invite you to remain seated as we uh, and sing along with the Bethune-Cookman College Chorale. 
as you hear their rendition. They're keying that up now, and we can begin playing it at any time. <laughs> 